Hi, everyone. This episode of Corium will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. Click on the link in the show notes, complete three questions, and get CME credit. I am particularly excited about this special Hoofbeats episode because I really think it's going to be a game changer for any attending that works with a trainee and really insightful also just for all, all learners. And with that, cue the intro. I think that everybody struggles at some point along the way. And we all specifically struggle with clinical reasoning because the system is not set up to explicitly teach it along the way. And so we're all left on our own to some degree to learn it. And so we learn it at a different trajectory. The voice you heard is Dr. Andrew Parsons. He's a hospitalist at UVA and chair of the COACH program's clinical reasoning subcommittee, which helps to support residents who are struggling with clinical performance. I'm Dr. Jess Dreiser, also a hospitalist at UVA School of Medicine. I'm a longtime fan of the pod and excited about making my Corium debut. And I'm Zavin Sargasyan, a hospitalist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, also a longtime listener and first-time co-host. Very excited about this important topic. What Dr. Parsons said makes so much sense. I don't remember learning much about clinical reasoning in medical school. And now as an educator, I definitely struggle with assessing it. Because you're trying to understand how someone else is thinking, but all you hear is the product of the thought process. And so on this episode of Hoofbeats, we'll focus on building a differential, so to speak, about what might be going on with a learner who is underperforming clinically. We'll work through three learner cases and explore helpful strategies to try to improve weak areas. I think this episode is going to be really useful for anyone working with learners. As Hoofbeats listeners, we're really used to hearing expert diagnosticians seamlessly go through the clinical reasoning process, but we don't spend as much time focusing on examples of when this process isn't going well. You get a lot of vague phrases like, they don't seem to be putting it all together, or they don't see the forest for the trees, or they can't really make decisions on the fly, things like that. You know, that alerts you that it may be a clinical reasoning issue. I've definitely said vague stuff like that, like sensing that something other than knowledge is off, but not having the language to pinpoint what it is or how to address it. I would say that the most common reason that people are referred is that there's a medical knowledge deficit or that the learner needs to read more. And what's interesting is if you look at these learners, at least in my experience, medical knowledge is is not the most common issue. It's just something that we know how to describe and something that we're familiar giving feedback on. That was Dr. Kara Morburton, a transplant nephrologist at UVA and chair of the COACH program. And I've definitely been that person too. Usually when I don't know what's going on with a learner who's struggling, and I'll fall back on the habit of telling them that they should just read more. If I looked across the board at all struggling learners that I've worked with, I would say most of them have what I would call average funds of knowledge. And really for most graduate medical learners, it comes down to how they apply that knowledge. Um, And I think that is a distinction that many evaluators don't know how to make. They probably, they get it, but they, they don't have the language to describe it. And so they just default to knowledge. So it sounds like there's a lot of room for improvement here. Before we start nerding out about different learner phenotypes and coaching exercises, Let's talk quickly about some can't-miss issues that are often overlooked. Namely, we have to check in with our learners about their mental well-being. Like, hey, how are you feeling? How's the month going? Or how are things outside of work? Because a lot of social circumstances and stressors can also influence performance. 
there is tremendous overlap between mental well-being issues and clinical performance struggles. I would say that about 40% of learners who are struggling have some underlying mental well-being issue. And in our cohort, anxiety is the most common, followed by depression, followed by cognitive issue. In our cohort, most commonly ADHD that was either undiagnosed or more commonly was known about but was not being properly treated. So the takeaway here is when you're working with a team member that may not be up to par in their clinical performance, the first task is to consider mental health issues that might be at play. We just can't miss that. Also considering other cognitive demands like family responsibilities or financial difficulties that might be affecting them. Okay, so if we're fairly confident that mental health issues aren't playing a major part, what else might be going on? The way that we categorize deficits is not strictly by ACGMA competency, but we group them into medical knowledge, clinical reasoning, organization and efficiency, and then professionalism and communication. And for our cohort of graduate medical learners, um, clinical reasoning and organization efficiency are probably the most common, followed by professionalism, followed by medical knowledge. All right. So before we delve more specifically into struggles with clinical reasoning, it's probably helpful to first understand what components make up clinical reasoning normally. Then when you're working with a learner, you can try to read between the lines and make an informed guess about which part of that process might be off. Beginning with chief complaint, it's hypothesis generation to hypothesis-driven data gathering, then problem representation, refining hypotheses, and then selecting your illness script as your working diagnosis. So as soon as you hear the chief complaint, you should already be forming some diagnostic ideas, what Dr. Parsons called hypotheses. And then it's sort of an iterative process of gathering more data, but in a purposeful way then filtering that data more into a problem representation, and then refining those hypotheses further from there. Right. And although breaking it down into linear steps like that is really necessary to a discussion on clinical reasoning, in reality, it's such a non-linear and complicated process. With that, let's hear our first learner case from Aaron Troy, who's a fourth-year medical student at NYU. And while you're listening, Pause for a minute and see if you can recognize some of these traits in a learner you've worked with and how you might begin to offer them feedback. Case one. It's your first day on the teaching service and JP, the intern on the team, is presenting the first patient. He appears extremely anxious. His presentation is quite disorganized and doesn't follow the typical HNP format or any structure really. He speaks for 15 minutes and hasn't even gotten to the physical exam when you interrupt him and move the team along to the assessment and plan. Afterwards, you pull the senior resident into the hall and ask him how it's been going with JP. He says that he's a hard worker, arrives at least an hour before everyone else, and is the last one to leave for the day. However, despite being the first one and carrying fewer patients than the other intern, he still barely has time to see all of his patients before rounds start. You check in with the program director to see if there were any concerns about JP's academic performance in medical school, and she tells you that there were no concerns, and in fact, he had a strong academic performance in medical school. Before we hear what our experts think, take a moment and reflect. What do you think might be going on with JP? 
you have a relatively inexperienced intern that did well in medical school and performed extremely well on their standardized tests, struggling to be efficient and organized in multiple activities throughout the day. Oof. I get antsy every time I hear efficiency or that word comes to mind just because it's such a vague, loaded term. So there's this framework I like for feedback, which is to think of feedback statements as low inference versus high inference. Low inference meaning that you're just describing what you see about the trainee, whereas high inference is you're drawing conclusions. And in general, feedback should be more low inference. Like, it's not helpful to tell a student you're disinterested because there's a lot of inference there and thus it may not be true. Yeah, I feel like a typical learner's reaction to hearing that would be no, I'm not. And then that would just shut down the conversation. I know. I would totally just freak out if I heard that from my attending. But if you give more low inference feedback, like, I notice that your arms are always crossed, you tend to sigh loudly, and you rarely ask any questions, that's just factual. And you're at least starting from common ground, right? So how do we apply that to efficiency? If you tell a learner you're inefficient, is that high or low inference? Well, I think it's still a little high inference because it's not an actual describable behavior. It's kind of a blanket statement based on your gestalt. Okay, what about you presented a five-minute physical exam, which is too long? That would be low inference, right? Yeah, that's definitely much better. It at least identifies the specific behavior, but it still doesn't tell you how to fix it. So once you identify the actual behavior, now you still have to explore why it's occurring because it could be from a number of reasons. One of the interesting things about deficits in clinical reasoning is that they can manifest in a number of different behaviors. And through my experience doing remediation coaching, I've been able to group those different behaviors into some common phenotypes. And so the phenotype you describe here is largely someone that sounds disorganized and lacks efficiency in everything they do. So we may also see this in someone who is reading every single lab value, or going off on a tangent about the patient's bunions when they're here for diverticulitis, <laughs> or a painfully thorough sensory exam in a patient coming in with chest pain. They are likely able to generate a differential diagnosis based on the chief complaint, but it sounds like because they're largely inefficient in, in what they do throughout the day that the next step, the gathering a history or gathering a physical exam is not organized. The fact that they're taking so long, not only in the room with a patient, but also when they're describing their history and also when they're pre-rounding, for example, and having to pick out data from the electronic medical record, the fact that they're not picking out relevant pieces of um, information, but instead seem to be just presenting numerous pieces of information points to the fact that they may not be practicing hypothesis-driven data gathering. So let me process this for a second. Hypothesis-driven data gathering. So the idea is that even as you're doing your history and exam and reviewing the labs, if you have specific diagnostic hypotheses in mind, the data gathering will be more focused and relevant and thus more efficient too. So is there a way to practice or coach this skill more preemptively? So there's one exercise called searching for the scripts. And so I would um, give just a small piece of information. Let's say 45-year-old male with chest pain. Okay, give me three 
diagnoses on a differential prioritized. And I think they would be able to do that quite easily because they're common diagnoses and they have good medical knowledge. Okay, but with that differential, you're only allowed five pieces of historical information and five physical exam findings to determine the diagnosis. And this really pushes them to prioritize their data gathering and make it most relevant. So they need to know what are truly the distinguishing features of the history in the physical exam that allow them to distinguish between the diagnoses that they have on their differential. Ooh, that's good. I feel like we often tell learners that they should, quote unquote, just present the relevant stuff. But what if they don't know what the relevant stuff is? What Dr. Parsons described is a great way to actually practice hypothesis-driven data gathering. Another exercise you can do is called highlighting key features. And in this exercise, you can print out full H&Ps, full history and physicals, unfamiliar to the resident, put them in front of them, give them a highlighter, and ask them to read top-down the history and physical and highlight key features of history and physical exam as they go. This forces them to do something called co-selection, which is what we do when we're interviewing a patient routinely, which is as we're gathering information, we're reprioritizing the differential in our mind and then adjusting the data that we want to gather. So what you would like to see if somebody is doing this well is they will highlight certain things, um, but then as the differential diagnosis changes in their mind, they may say, no, that piece of data is not relevant anymore or go back up and say, actually, this piece of data is now more relevant. And so they should constantly be adjusting um, the, the features that they find most salient. Very cool. So for a patient coming in with fever and cough, their history of hot tub use and pet birds might seem really interesting and relevant in the beginning. But once you get that flu test back and it's positive, you should probably deprioritize some of those details. So... To summarize the takeaways from case one, sometimes what it looks like inefficiency and not being able to prioritize is actually an issue with clinical reasoning. In particular, a struggle with hypothesis-driven data gathering, which is prioritizing information relevant to the problem at hand. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code CORIAM50 at factormeals.com slash CORIAM50. Case 2. At the end of rotation feedback, you're talking to your resident, Ayana, about the intern, Tom. Ayana says that she and some of the other residents have been talking about how Tom is really inefficient at giving handoffs to the night team. 
takes him almost twice as long as the other interns. And yesterday, he called a relatively simple cardiology consult about an older man with cardiac risk factors presenting with chest pressure and spent nearly five minutes explaining the question. Ayana says she feels like Tom, quote, just doesn't seem to get the big picture. Okay. Well, I see some similarities here with issues around organization and efficiency, but I'm guessing there's an issue with clinical reasoning here too. After all, this is a hoofbeats episode about clinical reasoning. That's some solid clinical reasoning there, Jess. Thanks, Alvin. Yeah. All right. Let's take a moment to think then, where might the problem be along the reasoning pathway? You might be tempted to say, I think, when you hear this case that, well, again, this is another organization and efficiency issue because this is another resident that's taking too long to do kind of the standard activities that are in their clinical day. But there's some key differences here. This is a resident that appears to struggle with multiple forms of clinician-to-clinician communication, such as giving a handoff, calling a consult, and perhaps oral presentations all of which require accurate and concise problem representation. And they also are told by their evaluators that they tend to miss the big picture. Interesting. So the difference is that in the first case, they were struggling to prioritize in the information gathering stage, but this learner isn't managing existing information well, like when it's time to put it all together. Yeah, it sounds to me like this learner is struggling with problem representation. What you may remember is when you put together the key aspects of the case, patient's risk factors, key presenting symptoms with the time course, and the most pertinent findings so far. Problem representation really requires that you understand what's going on with the patient and that you're able to pull together a lot of information um, very succinctly. Problem representation is basically a a fancy term for the one-liner. So it should be an accurate and concise, up-to-date one lighter that allows the listener to trigger their illness scripts of stored knowledge that they have. And it allows the diagnostician to refine their hypotheses that they originally came up with. And it's an essential skill for any communication. It's a skill that's critical for us to learn to be able to do so many of the things that we all do in our sleep. So it's critical for handoffs. It's critical for calling consults. It's, it's critical when you're in attending and have 25 patients on your list. All right, I think what she's saying here is that it's pretty critical. (laughs) Clues that your learner might be struggling with problem representation include difficulty with communication that requires a one-liner. That would be like calling a consult or doing a handoff. And in addition, struggles with the -the off-the-cuff summary statement at the end of rounds. That's super helpful, and I'm always going to keep that in mind. By the way, this is a bit of an aside. But there's a quote I really like by Charles Kettering. It goes, a problem well stated is a problem half solved. Nice. I love that. Yeah. And I think it can really explain why issues with problem representation would present with inefficiency, even outside of this context of calling consults or doing handoffs. So, for example, say your problem representation is a young person with acute dyspnea and hypoxemia with a super clear chest x-ray. 
that x-ray being clear really limits or narrows the differential. But if you don't include it in the problem representation as an important feature, suddenly you're mentally backtracked. You're not as far along in narrowing the differential. I think that's a great example of how what you include in the problem representation is critical to the next step in your thinking. So once we identify issues around problem representations, how can we support this learner? Yeah, so I think the first thing you have to do is you have to break down the problem representation into its um, concrete steps and explicitly teach it to them. So for me, a problem representation has three components. First, who is the patient? What are the demographics and and risk factors? Secondly, what is the temporal pattern of the illness? And in this case, you want to use semantic qualifiers, which are these opposing descriptors or medical terms. You're taking the patient's words and changing it into your own medical terms. And then third, or what are the key signs and symptoms? Okay, I'm going to be honest. It took me a long time to wrap my brain around what is a semantic qualifier. Same here. I feel like I used that term just to sound smart for a long time, and I I could never actually define it. Uh, But when I've tried, I think of them as brief medically meaningful descriptors, like taking the fact that the pain started this morning and calling it acute, or hearing that it lasted two hours, then came back and then went away and came back again and calling it intermittent. Right. Semantic qualifiers help you more easily categorize or compare and contrast clinical features, like acute versus chronic, symmetric versus unilateral. And so that basic structure should allow the resident to practice actually writing down problem representations on their patients at multiple times throughout the day. So to walk through this exercise, I would sit down with the trainee in the morning and they'd say, this is a 67-year-old man with type 2 diabetes and significant smoking history who presented with acute typical chest pain. And in the afternoon, after the cath, stent placement, and the ECHO results came back, I'd expect them to say something a little bit different, like a 67-year-old man with risk factors for CAD who came in with typical chest pain was found to have CAD and new ischemic heart failure. Another thing I like to do is kind of a role play exercise where you actually ask the resident to take on the role of a patient. So if we were to take a diagnosis, let's say of a new brain tumor, brain malignancy that's causing increased intracranial pressure. And let's say you're a 30-year-old female and you're presenting to clinic um, with this new finding. How do you convince the doctor that you're going to see that that's truly what you have? And so you take on that role play and the resident should be forced to tell you, for instance, that they have a new onset headache and they've never had headaches before, that it's worse in the morning, that it's associated with nausea and vomiting, and that it's quite severe. And you're forcing the resident to basically do the problem representation based on a basic illness script for increased intracranial pressure due to a brain mass. And so that's a little bit more focused on illness script, but illness scripts and problem representations go hand in hand. And so that's a great way to to practice. When learners hear you suggest role-playing exercises, you're probably going to get some eye rolls, but I do think that that sounds like a useful exercise. So taking a step back and looking at these two cases, 
Seems like a lot of where learners struggle is filtering signal from noise, stuff that's important versus not. The problem in the first case was hypothesis-driven data gathering, being thoughtful about which information is important to gather and not wasting time on noise, stuff that isn't relevant. And in the second case about problem representation, it was all about filtering at a later stage once you had all the data in front of you and highlighting the brightest signals to best conceptualize the case for yourself and for your colleagues. All right, with that, let's move on to our last case. Case three. You get an email from your colleague, Dr. A, before rotating onto a two-week teaching service. She warns you that the intern on the team, Seth, sometimes acts unprofessional. He got extremely frustrated every time his pager went off. He didn't call the most important consult, discussed on rounds, until after 2 p.m. And one of the nurses found me to ask if I could put orders in for them, because Seth wasn't responding to her repeated concerns for patients. We had a rapid response one day, and he just stood there, staring at the monitor, and the nurse asked a question, and he said, Yeah, whatever you think. What might be going on with Seth? How would you start to approach him? Is there other information you would want? It sounds like this is someone, if I'm getting everything, who is um, kind of there's a delay in response um, and maybe lack of recognition when things are important. I think there's a huge differential here. And I think the first thing I would do is talk to the resident and ask, you know, what's their perception of things? And I certainly would be concerned about mental health. Dr. Warburton gives us an important reminder to check in about well-being. But the other thing I might think about a resident who's not responding to pages or recognizing important changes is that they're disorganized or forgetful. And I can totally see myself sitting down with Seth and talking about their system of to-dos and checkboxes. But if those things check out fine, what else could be going on? I worked with a resident exactly like this, and for months it was felt that he was unprofessional, um, though it caused quite confusion because every time somebody met with him one-on-one, he was quite personable and didn't give any red flags that he would, would be unprofessional. And I actually think, in, in my experience, this is a problem with hypothesis generation. Because when faced with urgent situations, like the rapid response, or situations where the resident's unable to sit down and really take their time and think through things in a very analytical way, they really struggle. Again, this goes back to the fact that if this resident has average to above average medical knowledge, um, they probably did quite well in medical school or even on standardized tests with prompting, but in more urgent situations, there's no prompting and there's even limited history and physical exam, and they're pushed to make decisions. The ability to generate a wide differential based on very limited information is kind of the hallmark of effective hypothesis generation, the first step of the clinical reasoning pathway and is very important for seeing new, unfamiliar patients in high-acuity situations. Wow. It makes so much sense that difficulties with hypothesis generation would lead to an appearance that a resident isn't responsive enough or isn't doing their job. And I can't believe I've never considered that before. And the other thing I can imagine that could have this appearance is difficulty with making treatment decisions, 
what some people call management reasoning. This is especially difficult under diagnostic uncertainty, like in a rapid response or when you're getting paged back to back with new concerns. And I have to say, I actually had trouble with this my intern year. Nurses would often get frustrated with me because I was really slow at making decisions and prioritizing. But now I wonder if they saw me as unprofessional. Zavin, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. I think it's really inspiring to hear an amazing clinician like yourself talk about a struggle with aspects of clinical reasoning. And I think it's certainly true that an assumption of unprofessional behavior might be unfairly made in a case like that. If we do figure out it's a problem with prioritization, hypothesis generation, or decision making, what can we do to help? Another exercise has the resident create a top five to-do list every three hours ordered by priority. So this is a modeled on an intern who's getting calls all the time. The to-do list is constantly growing and things are changing. And so the focus here is on reprioritizing problems as issues arise throughout the day. And the idea is that the intern would review this list uh, several times during the day with the coach who can provide real-time feedback on the, on the list and assignment. Sounds like a fancy version of run the list with a bit more explicit talk of how to prioritize. What else can we do to improve hypothesis generation? If a resident struggles to generate hypotheses, I would really focus in on giving them a framework or multiple frameworks to generate a broad differential based on limited information. So some commonly used frameworks would be an anatomical framework or an organ system based framework or a focus on epidemiology or what's the base rate, common things being common, or can't miss diagnoses is another example. It's really helpful to have a framework to fall back on in a crunch. Okay, what can I not miss here? What's common? Or even thinking anatomically, what's in the right upper quadrant that could be hurting? Hmm. Yeah, those frameworks are critical when you have to make decisions on the spot, like in a rapid response or at two o'clock in the morning. Kind of like, what's a framework for making management decisions? So if you were to say, what management decisions do we commonly make? Like labs, imaging, procedures, calling consults, um, medications, and monitoring. So if you took those six things and you said, okay, fill out this framework um, for a given syndrome. Okay, I learned a ton. Let's hit some take-home points. First, I'll always consider whether there's a mental well-being issue. Anxiety and lack of psychological safety are very common, but personal issues, physical illness, or cognitive barriers can also be in play. I know I'm walking away with the new ability to think beyond medical knowledge deficits when evaluating a learner who's clinically underperforming. Next time, I'm going to consider clinical reasoning, organization and efficiency, and also professionalism and communication. Within clinical reasoning, I learned that it's not all one thing. There are different components of it where we can falter, like poor filtering at the data gathering stage, poor problem representation, hypothesis generation, or treatment decision making. And how surprisingly, at least to me, those deficiencies can present with an appearance of disorganization, inefficiency, and even unprofessionalism. When I have a learner who needs some work in the data gathering domain, I now have some exercises to pull out, like searching the scripts, where I'll have them choose only five questions to differentiate between three diagnoses, 
or highlighting key features in an HNP as they're thinking through their working hypotheses. For trouble with problem representation, I'll break down the three components of that process, which are one, the key demographics and risk factors of the patient, two, the temporal patterns of illness along with other semantic qualifiers, and three, the key symptoms and findings themselves. And to help the learner see the connection between problem representation and illness scripts, I might do a role play exercise where the learner acts as the patient with a particular disease and makes sure to include those three key components as they represent that patient. Finally, for learners struggling with hypothesis generation, I'll help them develop some frameworks to apply in that process, like anatomic or physiologic approaches, or teach them to ask both what's common and what diagnoses can't I miss? I might also have them practice their triage skills by creating and then recreating their list of top five priorities for the patients on the floor every few hours. We ought to be teaching more deliberately these clinical reasoning skills and not assuming that everybody comes to residency already knowing how to do a problem representation or to gather data effectively in a compressed time frame. So I think ultimately the things that we're doing in the coaching program should become just part of mainstream education. One thing I hope that all educators take away from this podcast is how to utilize these exercises proactively, like during noon report or didactics, and not only as an afterthought when we notice someone's underperforming. Okay, with that said, I think I'm ready. All right, I'm going to do it. I promise never again will I just write, read more on a learner's evaluation. (laughs) I believe in you, Jess. I don't know if I can promise the same, but I, I'll, I'll read more or less. Okay, so that's a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you want to add any of your own tips or share challenges, tweet at us and leave a comment on our website, Instagram, or Facebook page. Thank you to Kathy Sashan for the accompanying graphic, to Solon Kelleher for audio editing, to peer reviewers Dr. Denise Connor and Dr. Andrew Olson. And thank you to Aaron Troy and Dr. Vicki Casapitas for off-air producing this episode. Thank you too to our listeners. We love hearing feedback as always, so please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.